Well, let's dive right into the text. I'm going to start reading Acts chapter 20, uh, beginning with verse 1. And verses 1 through 6 set the geographical uh, location for uh, Paul's ministry. Here's what the Bible says. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. You'll remember that he's been there several times now. And when he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So Paul is circling back around through areas he'd already planted churches in. And he's not so much evangelizing right now, at least that's not what we're told in the text. He's encouraging. He's building up. He's seeking to build up the body of Christ. You know, we need to remember that, that every sermon doesn't need to be an evangelistic sermon. Sometimes people just need to be encouraged. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And then we're introduced to several of his friends. Sopater, the Berean, and Pyrrhus accompanied him. That's a strange name, isn't it? How many Pyrrhuses in the room today? <clears throat> by the way, a little tip. If you're a preacher or teacher and you're publicly reading scripture, there's going to be plenty of times when you come across names that you really can't pronounce. My advice to you is just fake it. <laughs> just pretend you know what you're doing, even if you don't. So he, he meets this man, Pyrrhus, rather odd, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, Secondus, and Dias of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. Though these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but he sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, he came to them at Troas, where he stayed for seven days. So this introduction to the chapter might seem a little bit boring to you. You might wonder, like, why is this here? Well, let's just remind ourselves that the Word of God is a historical document. Do you ever meet people that say, oh, the Bible is just a myth? Well, if it was a myth, why wouldn't you write it in mythological language? <laughs> it's not written in mythological language. For example, when you write a love letter, you conform the style of your writing to the conventions that govern love letters. When you write scientific literature, you conform the way that you write your scientific article, for example, to the conventions that govern scientific article, uh, a scientific uh, article. You don't write myth as if it were history with geographical place names and individuals and discussions about geography. So the Bible is presenting itself here and giving us lots of detail, which are true to the geography of the first century, to help us to understand this is, this is history. These things actually happen and you can actually get a map out and you can trace the various journeys of Paul and see that he got his geography right. These people actually existed and so forth and so on. So it helps us to set the geographical and historical context of his gospel ministry. But then we encounter another miracle narrative in the book of Acts. So here it is. On the first day of the week, when they were gathered together to break bread. Notice, that's a Sunday. Sometimes I hear people say, no, we're not supposed to be meeting on Sunday. We're supposed to be meeting on 
on Saturday, because Saturday is the Sabbath. Well, I, I know that. I know that Saturday is the Sabbath, but for various reasons, which we've discussed elsewhere, Sunday has become the Christian Sabbath. This is the day that we set aside specifically to worship Christ collectively. It doesn't mean we don't worship on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, but Sunday is has been the day of Christian worship, the Christian Sabbath, if you will, since the time of the early church. So they're gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Imagine that happening in church. This is why we don't have a balcony here, by the way, because I preach very long sermons. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. So this happens at midnight. Now, fast forward, it's now early hours of the morning. And he departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So if you're taking notes, here is the main point of the sermon. Don't fall asleep during my sermons. Don't fall asleep during my sermons. We have toothpicks you can actually install. Now, that's not really the, the point of the sermon, but I thought I'd tease you a little bit. The true lesson here relates to the power of God to raise the dead. The power of God to raise the dead. Now, the gathering itself and its duration shows us four things. And we'll just touch on these briefly. The gathering together that they had on this this Lord's Day shows us four things. Number one, it shows us the eagerness that Christians should have to gather to worship and learn. The eagerness that Christians should have to gather to worship and learn. Perhaps this is somewhat missing in today's church. Maybe we don't have the kind of eagerness and desire to gather to worship and learn that some of the early Christians had. And there's some cultural reasons for that, I'm sure. We have short attention spans. We want things quick. We want things condensed. We want condensed milk. We want fast food. I've told you this before. Just a little self-disclosure here. I'm a sinner too. How irritated I get when I'm in a drive-thru for longer than three and a half minutes. (laughs) We want things fast, don't we? And we expect the same oftentimes when it comes to church. What's the start time? What's the end time? We need it quick. Not sticking around. I want lots of time off. We know that this is true in the modern Western church. We're not just picking on you or individuals within our church. But it's not uncommon for Christians these days to be in church two weeks out of four and still consider themselves committed to their local assembly. Everything else Everything else takes first place, sports, vacations. And the mindset of many Christians is, well, when I have nothing else to do on a Sunday, then I'll come to church. 
And it should be the other way around. This should be our, our priority to gather, to worship. It's a commandment. Oh, but I don't always get something out of it. It's not my problem. It's your problem. You're responsible to come and to serve and to listen and to learn and to be a blessing to others. But so often, so often we have this very consumeristic mindset in the Christian church. Many people will will criticize pastors. You can find blogs, all the bad pastors, the guys that are in it for the money, the guys that are in it for fame and fortune. You know who creates pastors like that? Congregations. When you treat pastors and church leaders in your local church as if they are some sort of a business providing you with worship services, when you act like a customer, when you act like a client, you create over the generations pastors that become showmen, pastors that see themselves as business owners or entrepreneurs. So the problem, of course, is with the pastors, but the problem is also with the way people often treat church. Coming in, enjoying the show, leaving after the sermon. God forbid if we have to all stay for the final song and the benediction, right? Because we got better things to do. How about we pray that God would give us an, an eagerness to gather, to come early, to linger late, to serve, to fellowship with one another. The second thing we can learn from this text is that the word of God, properly exposited, takes a lot of time to preach and explain. It takes a lot of time to preach and explain the word of God. Many sermons make many Christians. Or some have said, sermonettes make Christianettes. That's not to say that we need to spend every Sunday hours upon hours preaching the word of God. That would be quite exhausting. But we should be spending a lot of time in the word as the people of God. This is the Christian Sabbath, and its primary purpose is for worship. Not for hockey. Not for family gatherings. Not for vacations. The primary purpose of the word of God, in in keeping with the creation principles, is rest and worship. Now, when I was a kid, our parents were pretty... uh, shall we say, legalistic about that. I'd go to church, I'd come home, my buddies would knock on the door, I wasn't allowed to go outside, I wasn't even allowed to be on the front lawn or the back lawn on Sunday because it was Sunday. And then we go back to church in the evening, and maybe that was a bit extreme, but it seems to me the pendulum has swung the other direction. (laughs) And people don't even have a concept of Christian Sabbath. They think, well, what is this guy talking about? And I can tell you, as I've grown older, I've learned to appreciate more the the principle of Christian Sabbath. I like to work with my hands, but I I try as best as I can. When I go home on Sunday, you know, I preach twice. I usually go home, have a quick bite to eat. I have a rest. And then I'm not out building things. I just try to take it easy. Sometimes we have discipleship groups or small groups in the evening. But I have to discipline myself because my temptation is to say, well, I got four or five hours here. I I could get a lot accomplished. You know, every once in a while, there's something you legitimately have to do. Something's broken or something needs to get done. But I think it's important for us to discipline ourselves back to this idea of a a Christian Sabbath. Sunday's primary purpose is for worship and for rest. 
The third takeaway is that God sometimes allows bad things to happen. This was a church service. This poor fellow falls out of the window and and dies, at least temporarily dies because he's miraculously resurrected. Sometimes God allows bad things to happen. But the fourth principle is tied to that. God shows his power in grief. So even in the nastiness, now it didn't take very long for God to demonstrate his power to this young man who had died. Sometimes when we go through difficulty or grief, it takes a little while for God to demonstrate to us what he has in mind. And there's a need then for us to wait and be patient with the Lord and to persevere. But ultimately, God does not permit bad things to happen just for the sake of bad things happening. He has a plan. And if we stick with it long enough, we know that he's teaching us or he's somehow revealing his presence to us, even through things as tragic as death. And I can't think of too many things more tragic than death. So that's our exposition of the first few verses, but there's almost two sermons here. So now let's read the the geographical context that leads up to the next sermon, beginning with verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, he set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land, And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytholine. And sailing from there, he came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. And the day after we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem if possible, on the day of Pentecost, which is 50 days after the Passover. Now from Miletus, he went to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them. So before I read what he said, how I'd like to frame this up is that as Paul discusses the way he does ministry, why he does ministry, some of his historical commitments, what we can learn from him is how to do ministry. So I'm going to call these five fundamental ministry practices, which we're going to extract from Paul's message here. So five fundamental ministry practices, which should mark all of our ministry and our mindset. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set sail in Asia. So Paul obviously wasn't um, an Asian. He was Jewish. But the Lord had called him to minister in Asia, what we call Asia Minor. Galatia, Macedonia, Ephesus, Philippi, all those regions. And he discusses with them his mindset and how he does ministry and things that he has put into practice for several years now. And they're all great lessons. And the first lesson that Paul teaches us through his ministry relates to humility. So when we serve, fundamental to ministry is humility. We must humbly serve even when it is hard. We must humbly serve even when it is hard. He goes on to say, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. We've read about those time and time and time again. This man's neck was on the line. Time and time and time again, he was persecuted and chased and ridiculed and and threatened. 
It didn't breed within Paul some sort of seething anger and hatred at the world. He cried at the trials that he experienced. In his humanity, he felt the pain of difficulty. But nevertheless, he was humble about it. He understood who he was serving and why. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. So he wasn't one of those preachers that picked and choose, or one of those parents or one of those Sunday school teachers or life group leaders who sort of danced around the difficult issues. If it was, nor did he pick things just for the sake of stirring the pot, but he preached anything and everything that was profitable, that was beneficial, in other words, to the people of God. He didn't shrink back. And teaching you in public and from house to house. So his ministry was the same whether he was in someone's living room in his small group or whether he was preaching on the front steps of the synagogue. His public sermons and his private sermons were both marked by the principle of preaching and teaching anything that was profitable to the people of God. Testifying to both Jews and to Greeks. He wasn't discriminate. He preached to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you preach the full counsel of God's word, including the tough stuff, here's what's going to happen to you because I've been accused of this more times than not. Oh, he's arrogant. He's judgmental. He's prideful. He's angry. If I had a dollar for every time. Right? And we always need to search our hearts. We don't preach the difficult topics of God's word to get attention. Because you're just going to get a lot of negative attention, by the way. But as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to remind ourselves every topic, if it's in the word of God, it's fair game. And we preach them not for the drama, not for the dramatic moment. But we preach the full counsel of God's word because we believe that everything that proceeds from the mouth of God is profitable. So sometimes we need a slap upside the head from God. Sometimes we need a good bear hug from God. Sometimes we need to be confronted and rebuked. Sometimes we need to be encouraged. It's all profitable. It's all profitable. And I hope the pulpiteers in our church, whether it be myself preaching or Pastor Chris or Pastor Blake or others, will put this on display. But I hope it's not limited to Sunday morning preaching. I hope this is true in our children's ministries today, in our youth group, in our small groups, that if you're a small group leader, you're not afraid to preach the full counsel of God's word. That if you're a youth leader, you're not afraid to preach the full counsel of God's word. And it must start in the home that if you are a parent, please don't bring your kids to church and sit them down and say, well, I don't want to talk about it. Hopefully, hopefully Pastor Blake will bring it up. Now, your job is to preach the full counsel of God's word to your children. It's all fair game. And we must preach publicly and privately. It needs to be the same message. We're not hypocrites. We don't have different, different sermons at home and different sermons at church whether it's corporately or in our small groups, our, our discussions in the hallway. It's the same message. And it's the same message for all Jews, Greeks. There's not two or three different gospels. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is a universal message. Much of Hinduism, for example, is actually tied to the culture of the Indian people. Much of Islam is actually tied to the culture of the Arab people. Christianity is not tied to a specific ethnic group. It's a global religion. It's a global message. It's a global gospel. It's the same message for all. And fundamentally, if you could summarize it, it's about repenting of your sins and putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what is alluded to in verse 21. So are you humbly serving the Lord, preaching the full counsel, even when it's hard? Hope so. Secondly, we need to exercise spirit-empowered boldness, not just boldness in and of itself, rustled up from the inner recesses of your own heart or mind or personality, but our boldness needs to be empowered by the Spirit of God. I love the language of this next verse. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. So picture a horse with reins on it and a rider. Horse is a whole lot more power than the rider, but it's being directed, it's being constrained, it's being guided by the rider. Now, unlike the horse and the rider, we're not stronger than the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit wants to guide us and constrain us and lead us through life. And we, we tend to be not like horses, we tend to be like stubborn mules more often than not. Or we want to go our own way when we, we do not want to be restrained by the, by the Holy Spirit of God. We do not be, want to be guided by the Holy Spirit of God. We have an agenda and we hope that God will bless our agenda. But that's not the way Paul thought about life. He's Even in ministry, even in something as beautiful as gospel ministry, he was always guided by the Holy Spirit of God. He, he, was, he had Holy Spirit strategy about him. He didn't just indiscriminately go wherever. He was always looking for the, the Holy Spirit's leading. But in his empowerment by the Holy Spirit, it says, not knowing what will happen to me there. He didn't even know what God, what the next step was. I just feel God is calling me too, but I don't really even have a plan. This is not to say it's bad to, to have a plan, but more often than not, you, you know it as well as I know it, know it. That when you, when you enter into ministry, or you enter into some sort of an assignment, it, it's, it often turns out to be very different than you think it's going to be. So the verse 23 says, Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What an incredible, you could read that verse over and over and over again. I mean, that, that's some pretty good stuff there. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day, that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So he kind of returns back to that main point, which he wants to drive home. He wasn't cowardly. He wasn't a selective preacher. He wasn't just preaching the easy stuff. He preached the whole counsel of God. And it was always a blessing. 
It was always a blessing. And his mindset was, look, look again at verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Now, I just got, I got to say, we need to stop there. And we can do all the nodding we want in church day and say, yeah, that's a great verse. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to print that out and put it on my mirror or make a plaque or paint a beautiful scene and paint it across the front. Because it sounds good, but the reality is, don't you think it's kind of difficult to actually live that way? I mean, it's one thing to say it. It's one thing for me to preach it. But that, that's a lifelong pursuit, trying to get there. To actually say, I don't account my life of anything. It's all about Christ. Because, oh, that sounds great. Preachable point. But can we not all admit how selfish we actually are? <laughs> we're, so, we're so selfish. We probably don't even know the depths of our selfishness at times. But as we conform ourselves to the word of God and allow the Holy Spirit of God to take over, guess what? He can wean us off of our selfishness and help us to be spirit-empowered, spirit-led believers. He really can. He can sanctify us in this area. But first of all, we need to, we need to hear it. Oh, okay, this is what Paul was about. This is what I should be about. And pray that God would humble you and pray that God would help you to get to a point in your life when you can say, you know, I don't, I don't account my life of any value. It's not that I have a self-esteem issue. But when I serve, I do ministry, I preach, I, I serve in, 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 in youth ministry, I do evangelism on the street corner, whatever your ministry might be, I'm not looking for attention. I'm a servant of Christ, and I just want to be a useful instrument in his toolbox to do whatever he chooses to do, do with me and through me. And I don't even necessarily, I'm not necessarily going to see all the outcome. Paul mentions here that some of the people he ministered to, he wouldn't even see them again. Many of the people you minister to, you won't even see them again. You don't know what the Lord is going to do, but your job is to be faithful. And that requires spirit being empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. That's true submission. True submission is to be constrained by the Holy Spirit of God, seeing oneself as a servant of Christ and on mission for God. And he, it just strikes me that Paul, through all the trials and tribulations, probably slept pretty good at night because he knew that he had done the Lord proud. Okay, the third task of those that are in service of the king is to guard the flock from wolves. To guard the flock from wolves. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So this is a, this is a, um, a sermon portion specific to pastors and shepherds, but there's application to all who influence others and who lead others in principle, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. What's the flock? The flock is the church. That's one of the biblical metaphors for the church. And from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I've said this to you before. And, and, I, and I, I'm a little bit reluctant in all honesty to mention it again because it's kind of embarrassing. But we've had three former pastors from our own church who are now full-on heretics and false teachers. False teachers. 
And we've only been around for a little over 20 years. They're false teachers. They've abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are men who have arisen from our own ranks who speak twisted things. It happens even in the best of churches. So sometimes our attacks are from without. Sometimes our attacks come from within. So what's our job? Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years, I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. Paul was passionate. Paul was intense. If you don't like intense personalities, you wouldn't like being around Paul very much. Because he was unrelenting. He never gave up. He never backed down. And now I command you, uh, commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all who, all those who are sanctified. So he's, he, he has a high view of preaching, but guess what? He also has a high view of God's grace, which goes beyond our preaching capabilities to build people up and to give them the inheritance that God has in store for them. We have a task and a responsibility. We're not walking around in eggshells, seeing false teachers around every corner, questioning and distrusting everyone. In fact, let me just say this. There's a lot of reasons in this world of ours to not trust anyone. It's a lot of lies. There's a lot of falsehoods. There's a lot of nonsense. But may I encourage you not to be a person who's distrusting? Just be cautious. Distrust is different than being cautious. I don't want to be distrustful of everyone. I don't want my default to be, I don't trust you. you got to prove yourself to me. That's exhausting. But we do need to be cautious. We need to be cautious around others, even in the Christian church. Now, not everyone's a shepherd. Not everyone's a pastor. That's what the word pastor means, shepherd. Shepherds are appointed to guard the sheep and And we try to do our best at that, to guard the sheep. You may not always see things the way we do it. Sometimes when the elders of our own church exercise discipline or make difficult decisions, you may not be aware of 90% of what they're aware of. And it may strike you as a little odd, like, why are they doing that? Why is this a big deal for them? Or why are they addressing that issue? And sorry, but we're not going to get up and tell you all the details. It's not necessary. You have to trust the elders of the church who are ultimately accountable to the Lord to make some of these decisions. But at the same time, each of you, if you're serving in ministry, is going to have people under you in time. Maybe not if you've only been a Christian for a week, but if you've been a Christian for a while, there's going to be people that are around you. And you also need to do your job in, in, in guarding the flock and pointing out false teachers because false teachers exist. There's false teachers in the church, those that speak falsehood, and there's those that act falsely. So there's kind of two sorts, those that speak false doctrine. But there's also plenty who might say the right thing, but their actions are not spirit-endowed actions. There's people that sow discord in the Christian church. There's people that are gossips or slanderers or rebellious. Oh, my doctrine's right, so I can say and do what I want. No, you can't. So we need to guard our church from falsehood and both in, in, in doctrinal falsehood and also in practical falsehood. So this is one of our responsibilities as a Christian church. And this, this mandate didn't expire in the first century. It's 
still relevant for the Christian church today to engage in, in calling out false teachers. Here's the fourth one. I told you there was five. We're almost there. Work, don't covet. Serve, don't covet. In other words, do ministry, don't do it for the money. Don't do it for the material blessings. Even if there's money that comes your way or material blessings that come your way, that comes after, not before. It's not the carrot that you pursue through life. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Remember, Paul was a tent maker, bivocationally, earned much of his living with his own hands. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So the simple message is don't be motivated by material gain in ministry. Don't be motivated by money. Don't be motivated by promotions, any sort of material benefit. If you are, you're manipulatable. But if you serve on principle, you're not manipulatable. You're malleable and useful to God. So let's just make sure that we're in ministry for the right reasons. And the fifth lesson, which Paul put into practice time and time again, is to pray for the church. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. So just before, before his departure to his next, next ministry assignment, there's this tender moment where the people of God uh, embrace Paul and thank him for his ministry, and he expresses some sorrow that he wouldn't see them again. But the thing I really want to emphasize is prayer. So we can preach the truth, we can assess and make sure we're doing it for the right reasons. We can call out false teachers, all the stuff we're supposed to do. But at the end of the day, unless God is present and manifesting his presence and power among us, it's not going to work. So we have to be a people of prayer. We have to say, God, we're going to do what you've called us to do, but then we're going to ask you to do what we're incapable of doing. This is super freeing, by the way, because... Many of you serve in areas of ministry and you put, you put time in, you're, you're working on your, your life group leaders, you're working on that. Maybe you're meeting with someone for, for a counseling session and you're thinking about it and mulling it over and reading up and serving the Lord in many different ways in this church. But if we, if we just serve of our own strength and then you know, we have the, the study or the session or the service is done, or I, don't, I don't really know if... Did I bear fruit? Was this benefit to anyone? Maybe, maybe the opposite is true, that you see people not responding, not listening, not growing in Christ-likeness. Well, did you pray about it? Did you soak your ministry assignment in prayer? Did you ask God to only do what God can do? We must, because in and of ourselves, we are cracked pots. 
We are broken vessels. And we have very, very limited capacities to affect change in anyone's life. But the Holy Spirit of God invading our ministry is capable of doing things beyond our wildest dreams. So let's make sure that we are a people that's regularly praying for the ministries that the Lord has assigned to us and given to the life of our church. So as you leave here today, very simply, are you putting these five ministry practices, um, these five ministry tasks into practice? And are you also, in keeping with the cluster of verses we read at the beginning, worshiping God for his exceedingly great power, prioritizing Christian worship, prioritizing rest, prioritizing your life around the things that truly matter to God. If you do, and if you are, you will be blessed and God will be glorified.